This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by eight amazing people. Greg Ross, Illuminati, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, 36 Dingo, Michael Fritschke, Dr. O in Teberg, and Doug Malam. Thank you all so very much for helping make this show possible. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight I am joined by Super Saxon Man. <laughs> hello, hello. And Vincent Trewell. Hey, happy to be here. And, uh, you know, I, I realized that Super Inframan, if I abbreviate it, is just Sim. Are you a Sim? Um, I Sim, or I'm like kind of more of like a complicated NPC, maybe. <laughs> I give out quests and, you know, have some really nice uh, uh, item drops, you know, and things like that. So, you know. All right. Okay. <laughs> so um, tonight's show is going to be kind of a, a mix of things. First, I have some comments I wanted to deal with some news articles, and we uh, a couple weeks ago I put up an AMA thread in Patreon, and we got some great questions, so we may answer a few of them here, seeing see how much time we have left. Um, but first, uh, let's see. Okay, so this one has to do with the blue light thing that we talked about a few shows ago. And oh, that's it, right, yeah. It says, hello, I'm listening to Symbol Street. Do you Street. mean Operation blue, blue Light or just a blue light in the sky? A blue tint. Okay. So oh, I, yes, okay, go ahead. Because I, I, I had woken up one day and everything was blue. Uh, there was some experience Jeff Ritzman had with the same type of thing. Um, and this person says, uh, I'm listening to Symbol's Dreams and Retro Causality, and I just heard the part about seeing things through a blue lens. This used to happen to me when I was a kid and unknowingly experienced either lucid dreams or remote viewing. I'm still not sure which it was because I was a kid and it was scary and I really didn't like it. When I was in that space, everything had a blue tint like I was seeing through a blue lens. I was usually floating in my environment and could see myself and uh, would be at the upper part of my house. Sometimes I would travel around my house and sometimes I would be at my grandma's house floating around kind of like a balloon would. Most of the time I just wanted to go back to sleep. I stopped experience this, experiencing this around age 10, but up till then, it was a very common experience throughout my childhood. I can still vividly see many of the experiences in my mind's eye to this day. So here, here's my question to people listening. Anyone else out there have this experience of things being in a blue tint? Because it seems like this might be a theme or, or, another, or a different color tint, either in waking life or in paranormal experiences, whatever. I mean, mine was I had just woken up and I looked around and the entire room had a blue tint to it and I like freaked out. I thought there was something wrong with my eyes or I was having a stroke or something, you know, and I walked uh -huh. into the next room and, and everything's blue and then suddenly everything was normal. And I was like, okay, what was that? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, if I may, Sarah, yeah. the first thing that occurred to me when I heard you say that on the previous podcast was you've seen in the mouth of madness yeah and you know there's a scene there right where everything's blue i don't remember that um there is one huh. yes i totally remember this uh the stephen kingish character yeah suggests to the other guy who's like pursuing him 
that sometimes, and I'm I'm not quoting directly. I haven't right. seen that movie right. in a decade. But um, sometimes I like everything to be blue, and everything is blue. Huh. I, and I just because I know you know in the mouth of madness. Oh yeah, I love that movie. Absolutely, as do I. And there's a blue sequence there. It only lasts it maybe a minute, but huh. at most. But the pursuer sees everything in a blue light because the other guy wants him to see it like that. Right, right, right. Huh. I wonder if there's I just anything... thought that was relevant, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, it totally is. I, I, I'm wondering if there's anything special about the color blue that, you know, I don't know. But if you've had experiences where things look tinted a particular color, let me know. I'd like to hear these if anyone else has had it and uh, if we can find any commonalities there. Yeah, that's interesting. It didn't occur to me to to try and do any research on that being a common occurrence or at least, you know, uh, recurring for different people. Well, I hadn't thought much about it until I heard uh, Jeff's uh, experience. And then I was like, hey, a minute. And then someone else had an experience also similar to, I'm like, is blue light a thing? Like, what, what's going on here? Or blue tint, and not even blue light. We're out here referred to as blue bloods. And if you're loyal to your country, you're a true blue. And, you know... It just rolls off from there. Huh. Mm. Be interesting if somebody wanted to try to, to uh, focus on seeing things with a blue tint in some way or imagining that in their mind's eye and see what happens too. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a bad idea either. Okay. I have some yeah, old. So if I wants to mess around with that. Huh? I said if anybody wants to mess around with that, feel yeah. free. I, you know, okay. So this, this was something uh, I was trying to figure out uh, the concept of resonance when it comes to like different things uh, as far as magic goes. Uh, Shirley Black would say like when she would be able to move like the, the pinwheels and stuff, it was because she she could sort of like resonate with them. She would feel them like she was a part of them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I've heard other people describe this. So for whatever reason, I, I was going to see, De- not, not this part isn't the for whatever reason, I was going to see Deceased and the Accused up in Rochester, and for whatever reason, I decided to focus in on the color red. And I had no idea why. It's just what popped into my head. So I kept trying to resonate with red the entire time there. And I get there, I go in. The only stage lights they had on for the entire concert were red. Nice. And I'm just like, did I pick that up? And that's why I had it in my head? Or did they somehow decide they'd use red because they just felt like using red that night, you know? Yeah. You probably get some special results with red, you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> the color of blood, the color Yeah. Of, yeah, there you go, you know. Huh. Interesting. Um okay, so this next one from Ann Glass. This is from when I reposted the, the the lights episodes as one. Uh she said, I witnessed the flash of light thing, which is like almost like a flash bulb going off. Weird thing about it is my dog reacted by running to each door of my house, wagging her tail and acting like her best friend was at the door. She was so happy. I was completely shocked. And that's the opposite of the way most animals respond to this stuff. <laughs> that's interesting. No kidding. Uh, usually the dogs are scared as hell. Right. Exactly. So it's like, huh. okay, well, brave dog. Maybe you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know I what to make of it. Let's go back for a second. With the red thing, yeah, um, that red wine in Christian communion—that's the blood of Christ, you know. And I don't mean to get all religious on this stuff, but the first miracle Jesus performs is to turn 
water into wine, presumably red wine. And red wine is very symbolic. You know, I'm just throwing that out there. Okay. Huh. Well, I, I don't think that had anything to do with me focusing on red. No, I, I highly doubt it. But anyway. <laughs> I'm so, sorry, go ahead. Um, in re- th- this was a Patreon response from History and Coffee that I really enjoyed. Um, on the UFO show we did with uh, Joshua and uh, Rosian and uh, Greg, he says, the only thing I want from all this is the guy who claimed he was killing Grays on, Grays on his ranch with a samurai sword to come back. Who is that? That sounds hilarious. I can't remember no, the guy's name. That he, well, go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of Googling him now. I should have done this earlier. He, uh, didn't he have a gray in his freezer? No, that was a different guy. Oh, that's a different guy. <laughs> so there's more than one of these. No problems. <laughs> uh, let's see. But Killing yeah, I give that the attention it deserves. It's not <laughs> the autocorrect does not want me typing "killing grays with sword." See. I'm also a little afraid of what I'm going to get from this. And if they're from a vastly technically advanced civilization. They can be taken up with a sword. Uh, for, for sale, ranch home, attacked regularly by aliens, bring your own sword. <laughs> yeah, it's the Stardust Stardust Ranch. That's what I thought it was. Um, I'll read this article real quick. Are you in the market for a ranch home? Do you enjoy being an easy drive from Phoenix? Do you want to slay malevolent aliens with a samurai sword? If you answer to yes to any of these questions, the Stardust Ranch, on sale now for $5 million in Buckeye, Arizona, may just be for you. Um, Jesus, I'm sorry. I should have muted my mic. I didn't mean to laugh right over you, but $5 million? Well, it includes aliens. Yeah, but you already have aliens here that... uh, Oh, my gosh. The home includes 3,500 square feet of living space, RV hookups, gated entry, stables, air conditioning, and the possibility of persistent visits from extraterrestrials. The home, which has earned itself the nickname Alien Ranch, is known for its reputation as a hot spot of alien activity. Its owner, John Edmonds, told the Travel Channel he has killed 18 extraterrestrials with a samurai sword while living in the home. He calls the aliens greys, meaning they fit the archetype of the alien with the gray skin, bald head, short stature, and big dark eyes. Ever since they moved into the house more than 20 years ago, the owners have experienced a series of strange events that continue to this day. According to Edmonds, that doesn't just mean seeing some weird lights in the sky. It means engaging in armed combat. Um, He's even posted a photo uh, to Facebook showing injuries he received while fighting a malevolent ET. Uh, When we moved in, people we bought the house from hadn't moved out. They had just disappeared and all their stuff was still in the house. Edmund said on the Travel Channel show Ghost Adventures. Oh, that's right. They did a Ghost Adventures episode about this in 2016. Edmunds then described a time when he walked in on three aliens levitating his wife off her bed. He grabbed a samurai sword and killed the aliens, he told the interviewer, something he says he's been forced to do again and again. If you don't take their heads, they disappear, he explained when asked where the bodies were. Uh, Another time, he told interviewers his wife's body was levitated down the hall, out into the yard, and then up into a ship. There was a cone of light. It came down, and she started to rise in that cone of light. I grabbed an AK-47 with a double (laughs) banana clip and went outside, and I opened up. All that aside, the home does include a swimming pool. (laughs) 
Oh my god. Well, you make so- an excellent real estate pitch, but uh, <laughs> no. Um, come on, man. Come on. You know. Yeah. I mean, hear me out on this. You know. Uh, Please go ahead. You, you see people like uh, Bigelow buying a ranch for a lot of money and doing research out there. Um, so, you know, do you say these things to attract somebody to buy it? Yeah, probably like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's all I'm hearing the whole time is I'm like, oh man, I feel like this is all just uh smoke to get, you know, the right person that's eccentric and has a lot of money to buy my place for way more than it's worth. I mean, it sounds uh, or, like it'd probably be worth it. I think you have nailed that precisely. <laughs> but you know what? It, from the description, it sounds like it'd be worth a, a, a decent amount to begin with. That's true. I mean, it's 3,500 square foot house, right? I mean, yeah. That's a big place. You know, with a uh, ranch and stables and all that stuff. That's, that's, you know, it's probably up there as it is, but you know, the aliens are just an extra bonus. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, no oh evidence as usual, but, um, that, I, I, I watched this episode of ghost adventures and if I remember, it's kind of hilarious because it's just so ridiculous. I, I really, really want to make some kind of Christopher Lambert, Adrian Paul Highlander joke about all this being aliens too, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm holding myself back. Why? Uh, because I can't come up with any good ones. But okay, all right. <laughs> if, it, if it hits me before we get too far, I'll throw one out there. But he's right. Why hasn't this guy been recycled like all the other nonsense that, that gets thrown out there? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other one I had here, I can't remember which show this came from. Uh, oh, uh, I think it was the ghost hunting one that jo- we did with Josh, and uh, I forgot her name. It's only oh, been on yeah. once. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue, and I can't remember it because that's what my brain does to me. Uh, but Martin Williams says Brian Bates also wrote The Wisdom of Weird and The Real Middle, Middle Earth, Earth. Yeah, both excellent books. Regarding suspension of disbelief, also known as the as if frame, Irving Kirst devised a method of hypnotic priming where they would suggest that the subject would begin to hear music, and the researchers would actually start putting music on very quietly at first, or they would suggest that the lights would get dimmer and actually dim the lights. This usually resulted in the subject fully entering a trance. This might have been uh, relevant to accusations of spiritualists, shamans, etc. being forced to use trickery, although obviously there were some that only used trickery. Um, maybe they had found through experience that tricking people kick-started the phenomena, a bit like a starter motor on a car. Another point about seances as is as with which circle dances is the need for physical contact between participants. I think it's possible that it changes the capacity, the capacitive and phononic resonance. There's resonance again, tuning into the Schumann uh, resonance. And there could be something to that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think when you're doing something like that, when you're lowering the lights or you're uh, adding music in or doing something that's not, uh, I don't know, that seems like trickery, yeah, it's definitely something that could shift your, your state of mind in the right circumstances. Oh, I think so. And, you know, was it um, was it Alan Greenfield that used to talk about some of their sort of like, you know, sort of like prank seances or something like that? I, and I may be totally misattributing the story to, to Alan. And I apologize if I am. Where, you know, there was five people in the room with like robes on or something. And, you know, they were watching the door and all that and nothing happened. And then afterward, somebody was talking about the sixth person in the room. And they were like, no, there, there wasn't six yeah. people in. Yeah, there I remember was five. That. You know, and so 
it, I don't know. I, I think when you start changing things outside of your your uh, expected uh, uh, perceptions or norms or however we want to talk about that, but you know, you, you expect to go into a room at a certain time of day and the lights are going to be on so you can make dinner or, or whatever, you know, when you get home from work, but instead you come in and the lights are dimmed and there's, you know, candles out and there's spooky music playing like even though the house can be completely the same and your day up to that point has been completely mundane suddenly it's kind of weird you know yeah you introduce a whole group of people into that and suddenly your um your expectations broaden quite a bit about what could happen and i, I think that, that sounds gives a lot totally more, right yeah and then that gives you a lot more room for something strange to happen um okay so this fits with the uh, the thing we were just talking about about the samurai sword and things being dredged up. Uh, this article was from September sixteenth, twenty twenty three. The true story of the fake unboxed aliens is wild, wilder than actual aliens, and this comes from Vox dot com. Uh, let's see. Um, Jamie's. Jamie Musson's fake alien shown off at the Casino Real Hotel in Mexico City, Mexico, on September thirteenth. Um, oh, that's, they're describing the picture. Okay, that looks like cake. Um, Aja Romano writes about... Oh, uh, nope, that's who wrote the article. Let's keep going here. Humans create such grand fakes, Zardulu argues, as a way of keeping the world weird and wondrous. But what happens when such pursuits of wonder collide with shameless opportunism and a willingness to exploit an era of misinformation, even if it means disrespecting and distorting the past? These are the questions we're driven to ask in light of two recently unboxed 1,000-year-old aliens revealed to the world by a crew of conspiracists with a history of trying and failing to make 1,000-year-old aliens happen. The Mexican Congress was holding a hearing on the existence of unidentified anomalous phenomena on Wednesday, September 13th, when the alleged Peruvian <clears throat> aliens were hand-delivered in a dramatic coffin-like box. Hand-delivered. The box contained a pair of dusty figures with elongated skulls on those on hose-like necks. They had three fingers instead of the usual five and bore a faint resemblance to Spielberg's E.T. Alas for truthers, these skeletons are not alien life forms. Instead, they are most likely a composite uh, or a composite of pre-Columbian human remains and animal bones all pieced together with some plaster. But how they aren't real isn't the, isn't uh, or is a story that's frankly wilder than than aliens. In fact, these little guys have appeared to to have literally been crowdfunded into existence in 2017 as part of an ongoing attempt to create the illusion that these hucksters are sitting on an ancient alien gold mine. And that's just the tip of the alien scam iceberg. The full picture includes a long lineup of skeevy com men dedicated to passing themselves off as pseudoscientific experts from media veterans to fake archaeologists and doctors with dubious degrees, all committed to, a to insisting, even as a litany of real scientists line up to object that their fake aliens are real. So uh, I'm not going to read this whole article. I um, mean, damn, that, that pretty much nails it down. Uh, right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, so, okay. So the origin is, uh, the unboxed aliens that caught the world's attention in 2023 were allegedly discovered in pieces in Peru in late 2016 or early 2017. They were purportedly found among the burial grounds of the Nazca and subsequently dubbed the Nazca mummies. The Nazca were indigenous ancient Peruvian people known for creating beautiful geoglyph designs known as the Nazca lines. They interred their dead with elaborately wrapped cloths, 
often posed in sitting positions, much the way one of the original aliens was displayed. In February 2017, a crowdfunding campaign for the Alien Project appeared. The project boasted its own website and held sponsored press conferences on the Nazca mummies. It promised to determine through extensive scientific analysis, mainly DNA and, G and C14, the origin of the bodies and mummified organs discovered in the southern Peru in January 2016. You can trust us, the crowdforming campaign funding campaign read. If it's just an imposter or a fake, we will be the first to denounce it. The campaign, however, went on to smugly assure their contributors if there is a fraud, we have not detected it yet. The man behind the campaign, per the Alien Report, our Alien Project website, is a pseudoscientist named Thierry Jamin, who bills himself as an archaeologist. He's not. He's also the purveyor of, a, of the fraudulent aliens. Um, so let's see. So it talks about, uh, different people who have been, uh, collab collaborating to, you know, say, yeah, these are definitely aliens. Um, let's see. A demon oh, fairy was revealed to be a, huh? God. <laughs> a demon fairy was revealed to be a bat, wooden sticks, epoxy, and other items designed <laughs> to deceive. Um, yet yeah. in another 2017 blog post, the popular ufologist, John Greenwald, Claimed to have tracked, uh, tracked down and discovered uh, that one of these people was another YouTuber known for making videos of mummies that looked exactly like the Nazca mummies in order to show viewers how such mummies could be created as a hoax. So, yeah, so they, they found one of the people who's, who's anonymously saying, yes, this is real, and he has videos on how to make fake mummies. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that whole thing with the uh, um, Congress in Mexico felt like, you know, oh, we, we just saw what Gersh and uh, the the uh, usual suspects did as a grift before Congress in the United States. What's what's our version of that? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it, I think uh, you you mentioned cake in there. Somebody. Uh, well, I had the meme, but somebody had sent it to me and I think I forwarded it to a few of y'all, too, of the yeah. where somebody had like was cutting it up because it was, you know, they made a cake to look like, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, but it, it had the, all of that had the same problems that, you know, Grush and, and then that crowd did where it was, oh yeah, aliens are totally real. And that's just what somebody said to their Congress. And then it got put out as, you know, uh, Congress says aliens are real right. or, or whatever version of that, that totally skips over the fact that nothing is verified. Yeah. None of this yeah. has been proven. It's just a statement somebody made to a group of elected officials, essentially. And you know, that, that already like instantly took my credibility, uh, uh any thought of even looking at those mummies again with any seriousness, <laughs> right. uh, you know? Yeah. Just, threw it out the window because I'm not going to waste my time on that. So uh, it continues yet. Yaman was undaunted after scientists uh, basically said, you know, this is, this is nonsense. This isn't real. Uh, and he had helped to boost his claims from a veteran media personality named Jamie Musan, a UFO enthusiast whose YouTube conspiracy theory channel boasts nearly 1 million subscribers. Musan has hosted a few conspiracy theory minded series, including the third millennium for Mexico's TV Azteca. But despite gaining attention as a journalist, he was the subject of a 2019 documentary called Musan's UFO Files. His journalistic credentials seem scant and aren't easy to verify. Neither are the discoveries he's claimed to make in the name of pseudoscience, nor the UFO frauds he's championed, which allegedly stretch back to the 1990s. These include greatest hits like presenting a strange being dubbed the Matapec Creature, 
which turned out to be a skinned monkey, uh, championing a hoax called the Roswell Slides in 2015, which purported to show a photo of an alien body, but turned out to be that of a mummified two-year-old boy. Several of the people involved in this hoax would later attach themselves to the Nazca mummy hoax. Claiming to have discovered a demon fairy in 2016, which was revealed to be some conglomeration of a bat, wooden sticks, unseen epoxy, and other items designed to deceive, uh, but not until after he sold it for $10,000. Gaining an entry on the UFO Watchdog Hall of Shame for repeated UFO-related false claims and fraud attempts. So yeah, um, these people, both there and in in the circles here and stuff it's the same people we're getting the same stories um yeah that have already d- been disproven and they just keep bringing them back out this is a much longer article uh, on vox.com and it's called the true story yeah. of true story of the fake unboxed aliens is wilder than actual aliens yeah so you know i'm, I'm just looking here too like you know I, I was searching on like you know what kind of money you would make with one million subscribers on youtube yeah and um uh, I got one answer here, and you know, uh, assuming this is is correct, of course, saying if you could get everybody to watch your video weekly, you would make about eighteen thousand dollars per week. Right. So you know, you're you're making just shy of a million annually uh, in AdSense revenue. There, like, sure, if I had a whole lot of people interested in my conspiracy channel, uh, and I got national exposure for my channel uh by going to pull out some old you know uh alien you know hoax stuff and yep. pass it off again yep. to get more followers you know uh, th- that's a lot of incentive there you know uh that's all i'm saying <laughs> it is a lot of incentive uh and yeah, that's, that's know, why like, you get you know they can believe it if they want to uh i also like my car and my house being paid for this is great you know <laughs> I leave it up to them to decide. <laughs> I mean, if I didn't care about this stuff, it wouldn't be hard to create the kind of content that's just nonsense that uh-huh. will, yeah, get a million views. You know, there's AI generated content out there on YouTube that has, you know, more subscribers than real content. Yeah. Yeah. So, God I, almighty, you hit the nail on the head there, sir. Well, so it's this, like so what? easy to be fake yes you know yes Mm -hmm. but those of us and i include everybody in the room plus everybody who's our friends you know um we try to keep it real we try to actually talk about stuff that actually happened and that's not popular you know what i mean it's not how it goes that doesn't make money if you want to make money give people their fantasy does that sound about right yes yeah so right on for uh we do we do live band performances for the last exit and when they're running live when we're live streaming them they'll pull anywhere from you know five to twenty people watching which is not a lot uh after they you know they're up permanent you know up on the the site after they run live and then they'll get a few hundred or whatever 
uh, for these local bands. But my sound guy was flipping around on Twitch, and our friend is a bartender, and he just puts his, his phone on and runs a Twitch stream of him bartending. And he's looking at it, and he's going, he has like 350 people watching. He's like, how come, how come he has 350 people watching him bartend, and we get... 10 watching a band perform and i said oh that's because we're producing actual content not background noise yeah yeah you know um, like if you put, turn on our thing you're turning it on to watch it whereas you could turn his on and just leave it on in the background yeah yeah and, and so, you wonder if some people aren't doing that but you know when you see sure. twitch streamers that have like three hundred and fifty thousand people you know watching their streams it's like this is crazy and this person is just playing video games or something yeah. like that yeah. you know um i, I get uh, really frustrated with just the the clickbait headline sort of approach and, and and this is you know just in my fun geekdom life uh you know uh, a few days ago matthew vaughn was asked if he what he would do if he were allowed to do anything with star wars and this was just a arbitrary question there was no hint that this was something that was happening or there had been a rumor that he might have been asked to do a star wars movie or anything like that and he goes well you know i grew up with you know the the characters from the original trilogy so i might want to go back and retell that story in a different way and the next day, a lot of the uh, YouTubers I follow that talk about Star Wars, they're talking about rebooting Star Wars, why that's right, why they shouldn't do this. Nobody was talking about rebooting Star Wars, <laughs> but yep, that was what they put in all the videos and they had, you know, a lot of vague lead up into them before they clarified and showed the clip and all that. But, you know, they had gotten, you know, tens of thousands of views from are yep. more in a lot of cases and you know i probably unfollowed like five of them because of that because i was <laughs> like this is a you know it is a uh very shady in my mind to you know twist things that way when it's, it's certainly disingenuous yeah that's the perfect word for it but also you know, people don't pay attention otherwise. They, they don't pay attention otherwise. And, and I also know on the, the back end of that, like, they're making a lot of money by being disingenuous. Yeah. And it's like, well, if you don't want to do the work to see what was actually said, and I'm going to get paid for it. You know, I could see a lot of people going like, eh, this, you know, uh, I'd, I'd like to not have to worry about my mortgage or my rent this month. So, <laughs> you know, so, let them figure it out. So there was... I, I don't remember where I saw it. It was a video somewhere that was like, oh, this, this ancient undiscovered uh, civilization in, you know, wherever it was. I, I can't remember exactly what it said, but I'm like, I've never heard of this. What is this? And I click on the video uh, and it went to a YouTube video where they're talking about, you know, these, these people finding these maps and this, this information. And I'm going, how have I never heard of any of this? Like, this is all new. Mm -hmm, and so I start mm -hmm. Googling it and there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing about this anywhere. And I'm like, what is going on here? And then I look deeper into the channel. The channel is completely AI generated. Wow. So AI is literally making up content and videos that have nothing to do with reality but they're presenting it as this is a real thing yeah man that is creepy yeah and you couldn't tell because it presented it in a, in a very you know believable way yeah yeah that's gonna be a major factor in human history going yes. forward yeah we can't tell what's real and what's not Exactly. And that's a very dangerous situation to be in. 
Yeah, you know, have you guys ever heard of the the quiet internet theory? No. Uh, you know, it was really no, kind of, you know, and, and this is probably a, a, you know, pretty extreme theory in some ways, but it also is probably very uh, real in a lot of ways, too, just depending on how you look at it. Uh, but it was basically like really came about when Reddit first started taking off and speculating how much of the activity on Reddit was actually real mm. and how much was actually, you know, uh, bot driven and and uh, manufactured either by, you know, different uh, agents or agencies. And, you know, now that you're talking about having getting to the point of literally having AI generate an entire environment of content, yeah. uh, you know, you, you've taken out the middleman of like, I need to go fabricate this, uh, you know, reality through Reddit to I don't have to do that anymore. You know, I've got something to do that for me. Right. And you could really, you know, you think we're isolated and siloed now. Like, that's a very dangerous prospect. Yeah. And and it gets harder and harder to verify things because, you know, Reddit can come up with something and then, or not Reddit, but AI can come up with something and then AI can reference AI. Uh-huh. And you end up with like a self-replicating bit of nonsense that actually seems to have a trail. Right. You follow the trail and it's really an Ouroboros, but you can't find where it comes back around to itself. Yeah. Uh, that stuff is... Uh, uh, if I yeah. may, so the 10 years ago, we just paid some guy in the former Soviet Union 10 bucks an hour to make content. But now we yeah. can just have a computer do it for free. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it works. It's terrible. Yeah. All right. So I got this story here, and it's translated, so let's see how well it goes. Um, this is from, I don't know where this is from, C-O-A-H. What country is that? I have no idea. It's in Spanish. Um, okay. But anyway, it says, Ghost in Saltillo. They hear a woman asking for help in a well. They go down to rescue her and find no one. In the middle of the darkness, about six meters deep, a female voice answers Juanita after an officer from the Violet Group asks, asked at the bottom of a sewer, what is your name, to a woman who is supposedly trapped, but they had only heard her voice. The chilling case occurred at 3.30 a.m. yesterday. Uh, I don't know when this is from. Uh, let's see. Uh, September 24th. The witching hour. Um, yeah, uh, almost at what is known as the devil's hours, the next line, uh, after a man under the influence of toxic substances, requested help to rescue a person in the drainage well located in the Nuevo Centrino, uh, Metropolitano neighborhood. The Violenta group officers who were responding to a report at the maternal and and child hospital were mobilized to the scene. The man told the police that the woman told him her name was Juanita and that she was asking for help from the bottom of the sewer. The officers looked looked out and one of them shouted at him several times, what is your name? And they heard a fema- her female voice say Juanita, but when they shined the light down for her, they didn't observe her. So they asked for support from elements of the fire department to try and save her. Minutes later, the rescuers arrived and went uh, and with special equipment. A firefighter went down to help the woman, but when he reached the bottom, no one was found. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. That's intense. And again, these are all officials putting their names on official documents. You know what I mean? 
This isn't just some guy saying I heard this. These are people filing official reports. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I think that one actually came from coast to coast. Oh, okay. But uh, or I had the link to it. Um, this one I just grabbed the other day from October nineteenth. A scientist after de- scientist after decades of study concludes we don't have free will. This was actually published in phys.org, phys.org. Um, I saw that headline, but I didn't get to read it. But I saw where that was was making the rounds a couple of days ago. This guy, you know, he, he's one of these people who thinks that, you know, everything is just preordained to such a degree that we don't actually make choices. Um, and he's saying, after more than 40 years of studying humans and other primates, Sapolsky has reached the conclusion that virtually all human behavior is far beyond our conscious control as the convulsions of a seizure are and the divisions of cells or beating of our hearts. This means that accepting a man who shoots into a crowd has no more control over his fate than the victims who happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. It means treating drunk drivers who barrel into pedestrians just like drivers who suffer a sudden heart attack and veer out of their lane. The world is really screwed up and made much, much more unfair by the fact that we reward and punish people for things they have no control over. We've got no free will. Stop attributing stuff to us that isn't there, which is a really weird stance to me. I don't know. That's kind of bizarre. Yeah. Uh, Sapolsky, 66, has a mild demeanor and a Jerry Garcia beard. For more than three decades, he escaped the politics of academia to study baboons in rural Kenya for a few months every year. I'm really, really, really trying not to sound like a combative jerk in the book, he said. I deal with human complexities by going and living in a tent. So yeah, I'm not up for a lot of brawls about this. Analyzing human behavior through the lens of any single discipline leaves room for the possibility that people choose their actions, he says. But after a long cross-disciplinary career... He feels it's intellectually dishonest to write anything other than what he sees as our unavoidable conclusion. Free will is a myth, and the sooner we accept that, the more our society, more just our society will be. Um, his book is called Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. And the book breaks down the neuro- neurochemical influences that contribute to human behaviors, analyzing the milliseconds to centuries preceding, say, the pulling of a trigger or suggestive touch on an arm. Uh, we know we make our worst decisions when hungry, stressed, or scared. We know our physical makeup is influenced by the genes inherited from distant ancestors and by our mother's health during her pregnancy. Abundant evidence indicates that people who grew up in homes marked by chaos and deprivation will perceive the world differently and make different choices than people who raised in safe, stable, resource-rich environments. A lot of important things are beyond our control. And it says, but like everything... We have no meaningful command over our choice of careers, romantic partners, or even weekend plans. If you reach out right now and pick up a pen, was even that slight insignificant action somehow preordained? Yes, Sapolsky says, both in the book and to the countless students who have asked him the same question during his office hours. What the student experiences as a decision to grab the pen is preceded by a jumble of competing impulses beyond his or her conscious control. Maybe their peak is heightened because they skipped lunch. Maybe they're subconsciously triggered by the professor's resemblance to an irritative relative, uh, irritating relative. Then look at the, the forces that brought them into the professor's office, feeling empowered to challenge a point. 
They're more likely likely to have had parents who themselves were college-educated, more likely to hail from an individualistic culture rather than a collective one. All those influences subtly nudge behavior in predictable ways. Uh, so I'm not even sure if he's saying that, that we don't, like that everything is preordained so much is that we're just the victims of our responses to things and we can't change it. And, and you know, that I, I do understand a bit more. I mean, it's, it's a more detailed version and, I, and it, maybe this is wrong for me to say, and he would disagree with it, but of the nature versus nurture argu- argument, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you uh, traumatize somebody while they're growing up and they're, you know, in adolescence, like they're going to have a lot of different reactions than somebody that was in, you know, a, a more stable environment because their survival instincts that kick in. And, uh, you know, sure, that can lead to more inputs and options in your head that are atypical and might be violent or dangerous. And uh, I, I, I also don't want to imply anybody that grew up in a traumatic home means that they're violent. I'm just. No, know, no, no, no. Yeah. Just want to make that clear. But uh, so, you know, that I understand. But I also still question the idea of, you know, uh, a drunk driver hitting somebody on the road uh, and, you know, uh, basically committing a vehicular manslaughter or a homicide or something like that being innocent because it was no different than backing into a tree. Yeah. Or, or something like that, like because it was preordained by how they were programmed. Like that's that that doesn't work for me. That doesn't sound right. But I, I could be wrong. Yeah, it's uh skeptics. Could I, see. Go ahead. If I may, I weigh in on saying that guy's full of crap. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> uh, no, you make your own decisions. I don't give a damn. You have uh, you make your own decisions. And yes, your decisions are limited to what you can do and what you can't do. Okay. But nobody loaded up the gun for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nobody, you know, put the keys in the car. You knew you were drunk. Stop it. Right. That's nonsense. Okay. You do have free will. I was a thousand percent free will about two months ago. Then I went through a period of time where, like, I couldn't get anything done. Like, nothing could just happen. And that caused me to retract to maybe 90% free will. But I'm still hardcore free will. We make our own decisions. And if you make bad decisions and get bad results, you decided that. You had the choice. Now, I will give the caveat that the hardest people to like reform are those who have grown up in an environment where something mainstream society would consider bad is normal. Right. Because I encountered a bunch of those dudes in the jail. And if everybody you know in your life has been a dope dealer, then being a dope dealer is normal. Right. You know, right. It, it's really hard to reform that. But you still make your own decisions. And I still believe that we are free-willed souls that can make our own decisions. And whatever bad thing happened to you, that doesn't define you. And you shouldn't let it define you. And I don't accept what this guy is saying. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. To uh, yeah, I suppose this comes around periodically, but... Uh yeah, I've never been completely comfortable with, uh, you know, uh, nurture being the end all be all of everybody's decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, I can certainly understand why people are inclined to certain decisions because of their environment. 
But, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in agreement with Vincent where like, you know, you still have all the information available to you and you make the best decision of that that you can. And uh, it, it's it's your decision. It's not, you know, arbitrarily made for you. Yeah. And even if we don't have free will, I don't think it's determined the way he's explaining it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, he, he just has this deterministic push toward, you know, okay, so like our our our, our chemical responses and stuff are going to determine where we go. He says here that, um, let's see, I was thinking about going to see movies. Where'd it go? Okay. Imagine he offers a group of friends that go to see a biopic about a, uh, an inspiring activist. One applies the next day to join the Peace Corps. One is struck by the beautiful cinematography and signs up for a filmmaking course. The rest are annoyed they didn't see a Marvel film. And like that's that's an interesting sort of uh simplistic way of viewing that. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it, but yeah, I don't take that for life decisions, you know. Yeah. Um he says there there is only one last thread he can't resolve. It is logically indefensible, ludicrous, meaningless to believe that something good can happen to a machine, he writes. Nonetheless, I am certain that if good people feel less pain and more happiness, or that it is good if people feel less pain and more happiness. So he, he's literally saying we are all in a machine, that we are all machines that are just following you know, our programming. Mm. programmed by our environment. What what a nihilistic view of the world. Yeah. yeah I don't <laughs> no. buy that one either. No. Um, now, I will give this caveat that most people are going to do what those around them are doing. Yes. That's the difference between a good school and a bad school. Why do you send your kids to a good school? Because everybody's going to college. If everybody you know is going to college, you're probably going to go to college. Right. If everybody you know is dropping out and doing other stuff, then you're probably going to do that. I understand that. But you still have a will. You're still a person. And to me, the core of being an individual is that you can make your own decisions. And you can not do what everybody else is doing. You know? And I, you know, and I don't mean to yammer too hard, but I grew up in a very racist environment. I chose not to be a racist and I followed through on that, you know, and Mm -hmm. you can make your own decisions. You don't have to do what everybody else is doing. And, you know, sometimes you got to grow a spine (laughs) and do what isn't necessarily popular. Right. But, you know, you you have that free will. You do. You mm-hmm. I, I felt it. You absolutely do have that. You just have to be able to question these things about yourself. Precisely. Mm-hmm. And that's very hard for some people. I mean, it, it's because you don't think about it. You just go with what you know and, and you don't stop to go, but why am I doing this? Like, is this the thing I should be doing? Is this where I should be? Mm-hmm. Introspection is so important. Yeah. All right. So this one is pretty interesting. Scientists use quantum entanglement to travel in time. Uh, It says these simulations do not allow you to go back and alter your past, but they do allow you to create a better tomorrow by fixing yesterday's problems today. So researchers at the, and this comes from Interesting Engineering website. Um, Researchers at the University of Cambridge have demonstrated that they can mimic what would happen to one if one could travel back in time with playing, well, with by playing with entanglement, a central concept in quantum mechanics that allows particles to be inherently linked. 
Quantum entanglement is an intriguing phenomenon that occurs when two or more particles become correlated in such a way that the state of one particle cannot be described independently of the state of the others, even when they are separated by long dis large distances. This means that the properties of one particle, such as its spin or polarization, are dependent on the properties of the other particles. Imagine that you want to send a gift to someone. You need to send it on day one to make sure it arrives on day, day three. Um, however, you only receive that person's wish list on day two. So this chrono mm. chronology-respecting scenario, it's impossible for you to know in advance what they want as a gift uh, to make sure you send the right one. Now, imagine you can change what you send on day one with the information from the wish list received on day two. Our simulation uses quantum entanglement manipulation to show you you could retroactively change your previous actions to ensure the final outcome is the one you want. Uh, entanglement's ability to instantly reflect changes in, one's par in one particle's state in another particle's state independent of their physical proximity is one of its most remarkable features. Albert Einstein is credited with using the phrase spooky action at a distance to describe what appears to be happening. Due to the fact that two, uh, that two particles can continue to interact even when separated, quantum physics offers a unique solution to time travel. Uh, the first particle is the one used in the experiment. It then acquires new information, which leads the experimentalist to manipulate the second particle to effectively alter the first particle's past state. This process then changes the outcome of the experiment, linking the past to the present. So it's complicated, uh, but it, it, it does make sense. Uh, mm -hmm. And also, this this was also uh, Whitley Strieber in one of his books suggested that we could get faster than light communication, like across the, the, the galaxy or whatever, with entangled some kind of quantum entanglement. Because if the particles yeah. both respond to one another at different areas instantly, you know, in, no matter how far apart they are. If you could learn to turn that into a communication device, you could instantly communicate with someone on the other side of the galaxy because the particles are connected. They are. And, you know, just even thinking in my head about this, because I, I was reading up about quantum entanglement and, you know, uh, communication at a, a massive distance, you know, something of, you know, millions of light years. You know, it would almost be as simple as something like Morse code, right? Where yeah. when I observe a particle, I intend for it to look like, it's spinning one direction and that's a dash. And then I know how to make it look at it again and it's spinning the opposite direction and that's a dot, right? And so on the other end, you get to see that particle, you know, spin one direction or spin the other, uh, assuming that you observe it after I do anyway. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you've conveyed, you, you've got the ability to convey messages very simply that way, very quickly. So it makes sense that it would be hard, but not right. Or at least it seems like that. Right. Or right. We're within our grasp in some way, maybe eventually. <laughs> and and I think, I think it'll, it'll be one of those things where it will be sort of like Morse code at first, but very quickly we'll learn how to expand on that idea. And the next thing you know, right. we'll be having video chats from Mars that are in real time. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, potentially the thing, the thing about altering your past though, like that sounds really nice. You know, you could send a different gift, but imagine if, uh, if corporations get a hold of that. Oh yeah, I know they would. Um, you know, but so I, I actually think that maybe the past is changing all the time, but because we're stuck within it, we don't know it. Also um, possible. Yeah. Because we just, you know, we fill in the history as if we've experienced it, but you know, um, we all know George Washington was president of the United States. Uh, but what if that's a new version of time yeah, <laughs> that we're yeah. experiencing? 
we wouldn't know it because we're in it, you know. If I may, um, it may have been, yeah, you know, John Adams. Uh, go ahead. Um, there's, I think this involves like what is the so-called Mandela effect, right? Yeah. Which I don't like the term Mandela effect because I don't feel it ever affected the actual president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> right. It, right. Fair. It affects things that are on the periphery. Yes. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, the Fruit of the Loom cornucopia. Yeah. Yes. I remember that. I know oh. I had T-shirts that had a cornucopia on there. On my the tag. I, I know. I do, too. <laughs> yes. My daughter remembers that I had those. And yet, of course, apparently, that never happened. Yeah. Yep. The thing about time travel is if we don't discover it now... We discover it 10,000 years in the future. It's always there. Right, right. Because you can always go back. And that's some of the stuff with Cremo and, you know, the forbidden archaeology. Yeah. I felt they were time travelers that went back. Not that humans were here millions of years ago, but that people visited here Mm -hmm. as they will. Because once you have time travel, you can go wherever you want. Yeah, and I, I kind of wrote a novel about that, but anyway, um, yes, I once you have time travel, it covers everything. Yeah, but there would be limitations too. That like gravity might play a factor, where you could only go back, but it'd be really hard to go forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, once Einstein proved that time and space were one thing, mm-hmm. that means that all the physical laws apply and we don't know any of those physical laws. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. You know, that's my two cents on that, but quantum entanglement is absolutely fascinating to me and it's something we don't understand. Well, if, 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 significant. if space is an illusion, if distance is an illusion and these things are connected outside of that illusion, then it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, just yeah. jumping back in the time travel thing a little bit too, because I assume at some point time travel is discovered, right? Maybe not by us, even maybe somewhere else, but it yeah. exists, right? Uh, we, we're just in a period that we haven't gotten to it yet. But to Vincent's point, once you have it, it's it's everywhere. Um, so all I can think of is that one time travel exists because somebody in the far off future figured it out, but two, they've also uh, there. There's been some type of and and y'all are going to laugh at me ethics <laughs> about how things are interfered with uh or or this is the best timeline <laughs> yeah they don't want to mess with it because it has the eventual that, outcome that's preferred yeah and there's a observer bias you know like the schrodinger's cat thing yeah where yeah. if somebody's watching something like I did this experiment on Reddit several years ago, and I asked anybody to tell me, do you remember a different line of presidents from JFK to the current president? Mm. And nobody even trolled me. Like, yeah, no, everybody agreed that's who the president was. It's an observer effect. That's why I don't believe that Mandela was affected by it, because too many people were watching. It's mm. always peripheral. It's right. always Chick-fil-A was spelled this way. Right. It's right, always, right. you know, the logos or the, the something little things. nobody really pays that much attention to. 
Right. Big things, exactly what you mean. important things. Too many people are watching them. Yeah. And so and they can't change because there's too much agreement on it, essentially. Yeah. Exactly. The observer effect. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. That's something I've noticed. It's always stuff around the periphery that nobody really cares that much about until you look back and say, wait, I remember that. And that didn't happen. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I my wife has seen the Sinbad movie. Oh, the, the the Kazam, yeah, Shazam, Shazam. Okay, okay. Kazam was Shaq. Everybody knows about that. that that's real. Um, yeah, <laughs> but there was this other movie where Sinbad played a genie, right? And people have seen that, and mm-hmm. she happens to come from, as it were, the small town that Sinbad's from um, in Michigan, and. So she knows exactly who the hell Sinbad is. Right. Now, Sinbad in our world denies he was ever in such a movie. Yeah. But both my wife and my daughter have seen that movie. (laughs) Me, I can't remember if I saw it or not, you know? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have seen it regardless. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, you know, it's not life and death issue, but it's a thing that millions of people remember. And I... I got involved with that whole thing due to a weird experience where I remember watching the Johnny Depp movie, Donnie Brasco. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now that's a real movie that actually happened. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I remember watching it in 1992, maybe 1993 with a friend of mine and then watching it again in 1994 with a different friend of mine. The problem is the movie didn't come out until 1997. Ah. So, you know, what the hell was I? Why do I have those memories if they weren't real? Right. You know, it's a crazy thing. And it's not something that I can, you know, I can misremember stuff. I mean, I I admit that. But, God, that's so weird. Yes. And I feel that that's the kind of peripheral thing that time travel might cause. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, quick mid-show break here. Uh, contact info, where the road go.com has all of that. If you just click on the contact uh, link, I believe it's just the contact link. Uh, so it has the email. The important one is if you have a story you want to share for a listener's story show, that is stories at where did the road go.com. There's also a mailing address up there. My Amazon wish list is up there. If you feel generous and want to get me something, uh, or better yet, you can become a patron, and that's right on the main page. It's only $3 a month. You get extra stuff every single week and uh, sometimes more, sometimes some really spe- special rare stuff as well. All right. Um, if you like metal, if you like heavy music, check out my other show, The Last Exit for the Lost. That is at thelastexit.org. There's an enormous archive. There's live performances from bands. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. So if you're into that type of thing, check it out. As for my recommendation this week, hmm, I'm not sure if I ever recommended this podcast before or not. Uh, It's called the Lovecraft Investigations, and I thought they were done. Uh, Their last episodes prior to just recently ended in 2020, the end of 2020. And I got the impression, or I read somewhere, that 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 was it. They weren't doing anymore. And uh, they came back in, let's see. Yeah, this this uh, in the, uh, not this month anymore, but in October, with a whole new series. It's on the BBC, so it's under uh, BBC Radio Four. You can find it on 
I mean, I found it on audio, uh, whatever I'm using here. What am I using? Podcast Addict. Ah, yeah. All right. So they've done, and it's one continuous story. They are not redoing Lovecraft stories, but they are instead taking inspiration from Lovecraft stories. So the very first one is the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is actually one of my favorite Lovecraft stories, but they twist it around very, very much using just some of the ideas. And then they do The Whisperer in Darkness, um, Shadow Over Innsmouth. Uh, let's see. And then the new one is The Haunter of the Dark. I love it. I really do. It's it's incredibly well done. It has just enough weirdness to it without going overboard or getting campy. Uh, yeah, I absolutely recommend you check this out, especially if you like Lovecraftian stuff. Like I said, it is not the Lovecraft stories. It is just inspired the, by those stories. And they put a whole new modern twist on it. And yeah, it's kind of cool. So check that out. Lovecraft inve- Investigations. Ah. All right. End of mid-show break. So I am here with Vincent Trewell and Super Saxon Man. Um, <laughs> and and as far as the Mandela effect, which is what we were just talking about, like I, I initially put it down to just kind of false memory syndrome, uh, especially mm-hmm. when things are really similar, like the Baron. Oh, State and there Bears. is a lot of that. A yeah, lot, there's so much BS in this. Yeah, and it's like okay, I could see how someone could be sure it was spelled differently, but you know. Like for I, for the longest time, I thought Judas Priest had an album called Stained Glass because the cover has stained glass on it, but it's mm-hmm. actually stained class. And so mm-hmm. one, one day, like someone social class, huh? Like, like yeah, social like social class, class. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, one day someone's like, "No, it's stained class," and I'm like, "It's what? No, it's stained glass. I'm sure of it. No, I was wrong. My brain just saw that the word class in this stained glass cover." And just yeah. went with stained glass, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Okay. The word dilemma. How do you spell that? D-I-L-E-M-M-A. Yeah. That's right. how it's spelled. But I remember having to memorize it as a spelling word in school. Right. As D-I-L-E-M-N-A. Silent uh, N. Huh. Now, that's just not me. There's millions of people who remember having to learn that. Yeah. And I told that to my doctor and she freaked the hell out because <laughs> she is a very, you know, not paranormal person. And she remembered having to learn that word too in the silent N. But yeah. if you Google it and look it up, you can't find any evidence whatsoever that yeah. there was ever a silent N. And yeah. the silent N makes no sense. But yet mm-hmm. millions of people remember, hey, I had to learn that word. And there was a silent N. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Yeah. Why would we make that up? I wouldn't think two seconds about that. You know what I mean? And yeah. But yeah. she strongly suggests we talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, but yeah. The, and half the people remember having to remember that word. And there's an N there. But apparently that never happened. And there's no English texts and there's no dictionaries and no nothing that ever existed. Oh, mm-hmm. But the, I know uh, it did because I had to remember that. <laughs> um, that's like that's the, one uh, of the stronger ones, you know. The James Bond one is the one that threw me and made me actually really, really start looking at this stuff more, which was uh, the movie. I think it's Moonraker with Jaws. Uh huh. Oh yeah. The the and, and he comes yeah. crashing down at the end, and you know the girl comes up to him, and he smiles with his his 
jaw, you know, steel jaws, and then she smiles and she has braces, and they make this connection. And the then I'm told, yes, yeah, yes, she doesn't have braces, and I'm like, what do you mean she doesn't have braces? That doesn't even make sense. Sure enough, she doesn't have braces, and it's like, that's, yeah, what, what? No, the whole point was they had both had metal mouths. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how yeah. I remember that one too. Yes, yes. Yeah. So you know. Yeah. That that, it, it that does, was the one that really threw me. Seems like the past has been changed behind us. The weirdest one to me is the one in the Bible with the lion shall not shall lay down with the lamb. Okay. Lion. There was a movie put out in like the nineties, early two thousands, called Lions and Lambs. Okay. Well, if you break open the Bible, any version, anyone you want today. Says the wolf will lay down with the lamb. Hmm. What happened to the lion? Hmm. Like that was a well-known thing. Lions for lambs. Uh, you know the lion and the lamb. Ah, uh, and that you can't find that. Hmm. It's crazy. Now I understand there are such things as popular misconceptions. Sure. Like Humphrey Bogart never actually says "Play it again, Sam." In right. Okay, that's just a popular misconception. But there are other things that we know happened. Yeah. I remember that. My well, daughter got on me about, why did I ask you about a cornucopia? How would I know about a cornucopia if it wasn't on your T-shirt? Exactly. Right, we right. Know that happened, and yet there's no evidence that that ever happened at all. And, th- and it's crazy to me. There's things and like... time travel is the only answer to me. But there's also things like Star Wars where, you know, Vader never actually says, Luke, I am your father. He just says, I am your father. Yeah. But that's yeah. just, I think, a logical misremembering. Yeah. Yeah. I'm iffy on movie quotes because people don't always speak in full sentences and, you know, yeah, yeah. mumbling well, and stuff, you yeah, know. The- the Star but Wars one I know sticks what you're out. Talking about. Yeah, the, the the Star Wars one I always think about quite a bit too. Uh, it sticks out in my mind as sort of an example of that, like you guys are talking about. Because you know, you think when that movie came out, it, unless you paid to go back and see it in the movie theater, you didn't have a whole lot of access to it. So it would have been very easy to just go, "Look, right. I am your father." You know, as part of pop culture. Yep, um, and that's true. That's very yeah, true. But you know, what is interesting is one of my favorite movies growing up uh, in, and y'all can make fun of me online for this. I don't care. I love it. Uh, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Ah, okay. Oh, no and, way, man. That, that, yeah, it's a great movie. There, there's a scene in there where they are, you know, somewhere in medieval Europe and they put on night armor and they start reenacting the, the scene from empire strikes back. And uh, I can't remember which one of them says it. Uh, Keanu or or Winner's character throws out, you know, uh, Luke, I am your father. You know, which is the line that we all think was said from yeah. the movie. And it, it crossed my mind if a lot of us thought like that sort of reinforced the misremembering. Yeah, because it was just enough on that edge of like mass consumption that everybody saw it. But it wasn't important enough to remember that's where you got it. Right, right. Because, I, I mean, millions problem. of people There's saw that. so much pareidolia floating around with it that yes. it's, it's tough to separate, you know? That's, yeah, that's, it, it, it does seem like pareidolia, pareidolia. So this came up, I don't know how many times in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm sure you're both familiar with the, uh, the, the Inside Edition clip of Bill O'Reilly just, like, flipping out. 
Oh, yeah. And like anytime someone says F it, that's what pops into my head is him going F it. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. And I'm like, and someone I was with had never heard of that. And I was like, oh, I got to find you that clip. And I'm playing the clip. And he doesn't actually say that. He says F it, but he doesn't say F it. We'll do it live. That's just what has it has become. Be- oh, wow. Because we kind of shorten it together to, you know, and then we all know what clip we're talking about. But right. he never actually says that phrase. Mm. All the words are no, there. I've been limiting my consumption of news just lately for some reason. But um, yeah, I wasn't aware of that one. Oh yeah, I, that I, I makes total it. sense. And I didn't. I did not realize that's something we've just shortened for the the kind of slang of it. You know. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the functionality because yeah, like I know exactly what you're talking about, and if you ask me to go watch a video, I would just assume that I could find a clip of him saying exactly that. Yep, you know, but um, I, I've definitely had similar experiences where I found out like that's eh, not quite what we thought it was. You yeah, know? yeah, and that was sort of- in human memory, as you've pointed out a number of times, right, is not the greatest. No, you know, very fallible. Yeah. So that that yeah. actually came from Inside Edition, and for anyone who wants to look it up and see what we're talking about, uh, back in 2008. If you just put in F it, we'll do it live, it's the very first thing that comes up. Um, and basically, he had a, a, a monitor that was, he had to say something like, and to take you out tonight is uh, this new music video from Sting. And he was reading it, and he, it wasn't making any sense to him. And he just starts mm-hmm. having a meltdown about it. He's like, what does that even mean? Those aren't even words. And he's just going nuts and screaming at everyone. And then he he says, let's do it live. And then he does it perfectly live. And it's like, what what, what the hell was that? Yeah. You couldn't yeah, pre-record it, but you could do it live. But yeah. you know, that, that, uh, you know, lover or, or not love Bill O'Reilly. That is somebody that it's done so much television that after he had digested it one time could deliver it perfectly. Yeah. You know, that, that's yeah. skill. All right. One more story for tonight. Um, this one's very, uh, it goes into the category of things just keep getting older. Uh, October 9th, 2023, <laughs> not built I'm by, not, alone. not built by homo sapiens. Scientists discover extraordinary 4,007 or 4,076,000-year-old wooden structure. Uh, discoveries at Calambo Falls, Zambia, offer insights into ancient human technology. Recent research has revealed that nearly half a million years ago, ancient human ancestors, predating Homo sapiens, were already engaging in advanced woodworking. The artifacts indicate that these humans were building structures, potentially laying the foundation of platforms or parts of dwellings, much earlier than we once believed. A team from the University of Liverpool excavated preserved wood at Colombo Falls, Zambia, dating back to an impressive 476,000 years. Analyzing the tool cut marks on the wood, the team deduced that these early humans intentionally shaped and combined two logs, showcasing the deliberate crafting of logs to fit together. Prior to this discovery, humans were believed to only utilize wood for simpler purposes, such as creating fire, crafting crafting digging sticks, and making spears. The preservation of this wood in itself is remarkable. Typically, wood for some such ancient times deteriorates and disappears. However, at Colombo Falls, high water levels have protected and preserved these ancient wooden structures. Um, these findings cast doubt on the previously held belief that Stone Age humans were strictly nomadic. The abundance of resources in the vicinity of Colombo Falls suggests that these ancient humans could have been settled 
tapping into the perennial water source in the surrounding forests for sustenance, allowing them to engage in construction. Um, they use their intelligence, imagination, and skills to create something they'd never seen before, perhaps something that never previously existed. But even that, I think, is, is kind of pushing it, because we don't know what else could have been there that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, this is evidence of that. So to, to assume this is like the first thing is kind of like, well, why would this be the first thing they built? How, how right. can you say that this didn't exist before? This totally could have, you know, they, this is probably something they built up to. They learned from previous attempts. Right, right, exactly. And wood isn't exactly the most durable exactly. medium, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's amazing that there's any left at all. Yes, yeah. yeah. And especially yeah. almost half a million years old. So, I mean, yeah. you, we were talking about Cremo earlier with Forbidden Archaeology, and that's you know, him showing that we find these remains that don't make sense and and the scientific establishment just goes, Well, we'll just ignore it, you know? It's like, you know, you don't get to do that. Yeah. You know, I that was one of my, my hardest things when I was in undergrad, uh, doing anthropology, when you would understand that, you know, finding these things is is like statistically unimaginable. Yeah. You know, something to survive is statistically, you know, uh, astronomically hard to do, you know, to get through, you know, a hundred thousand years, think of like a dinosaur fossil. That's, you know, at least 65 million years old. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And so, you know, you have to also accept that, you know, we're, we're, we're building stuff out of very little evidence of anything. Um, and that's okay. You know, because we're, yeah. we're doing the, the best job we can with what we can find. But to also just preemptively say, you know, this is all that they did or, or anything like that. It, there's no way of actually knowing that. Right. You right. know, you don't You're know. finding what, a small fraction of 1% of what they created. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it's really hard to say one way or the other. And that's when I, I get very frustrated when we talk about uh, civilizations that have been around longer than, you know, history currently accepts. Because I'm like, you know, if they were building things out of materials that did not last, which is probably what they did, and they were mostly using lithic, you know, stone technology, there's not going to be anything left. Yeah. You know, like you'd be lucky to find it now. So if we have bits of things that say maybe there was stuff before, like you can't tell me that wasn't possible. Right. You know, right. and writing it off is is uh, kind of bullheaded to me. Yes. Yeah. But we have this linear belief that everything just evolves into higher structure. Thus, we couldn't right. have had, had a better society than we have now in the past that got destroyed. Nope. Nope, it must all be, you know, this is the pinnacle yeah. of everything. If I may. Um, yeah, go ahead. It's I'm actually working on a nonfiction book. Oh. Slow as hell, but I'm working on it. And it starts with the premise that if the dinosaurs had had a high-tech civilization, we would have no way to prove that. Yeah, um, that's There true. would be no evidence because it's just too long ago. And it goes from there. Huh. But yeah, a lot of this stuff, we there's no way we could know this, you know, um, and so much. And OK, let me spit this out and then I'll refrain a little bit. But let me spit this out. Darwinianism evolution. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that's not real, but it was also so loaded with racist tropes from the British Empire yeah. that it's entirely contaminated. 
that definitely we are the best possible thing that ever happened. Yeah. And all these other people are primitive and certainly before them, God, they weren't even human. You know, they're just right, ape right. men. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's all crap. Um, you know, that even previous other kinds of humans like Neanderthals and Denosovians and the Hobbit people, we don't know what the hell they were capable of. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the bias was so hard that the modern British human must be the apex of civilization. <laughs> and yeah. that, that was Darwin's whole thing. You know, we go from this to this to this and it's all an upward climb. Yeah. And yeah. that's not reality at all. And until we can get away from that, you know, we're not going to see reality for what it is. I digress. Oh, it's a good point, Vincent. And, you know, it's going with all of that when people that are disingenuous about possibilities of, of other civilizations that were advanced in different ways, it's always presented in this context of like, you know, uh, super technology, flying cars kind of thing or something like that. But, you know, uh, what an advanced civilization might look like to uh, a contemporary society 5,000 years ago might still look fairly primitive to us. Right. Uh, you know, and, and those are things that I, I always am bothered by because it feels like a way of preloading uh, bias and disbelief. When it might be that, like, you know, an advanced civilization may have had, uh, you know, smarter knowledge of how to use aqueducts or something like that. Yeah. And they got wiped out in, you know, a natural disaster. That doesn't mean they weren't advanced for 20,000 years ago. (laughs) You know, they probably were. Um, And maybe they were sustainable, you know? Yeah, maybe they were sustainable. Exactly. Or, you know, they were socially more advanced than we are. I mean, there's all these things that... uh, that can mean and i think it gets twisted quite a bit to present it as if you know there was this techno utopia and you know a comic came and the you know i i think it hurts that discussion intentionally and i think it's by design the you know when there was that show uh life without people or whatever or, or yeah whatever they were kind of showing everything to K. Oh, yeah and they basically estimated uh, that our civilization, if we if we disappear, if all people disappeared off the face of the planet today, our civilization would be almost completely undetectable ten thousand years from now. Yeah. Um, yeah. They said the only things that would survive would probably be the Great Pyramids, uh-huh. you know, Giza Plateau, and possibly the Big Dam uh, on the Colorado River. I forget which dam it is now. Hoover? Maybe Hoover. Yes. Uh, which is just because it's such a massive structure, it might actually survive. But all the metal, all the the everything, all the plastics, everything would just decay and disappear, and no one would yeah. know we were here. I mean, sure, there might be little traces here and there, but when you think about that, you think about like that's just if we disappeared, not if the planet was like went through a massive disaster cycle. That's if right. we just disappeared and everything grew over everything and took everything back. So if we get hit by a uh, a large enough comet, meteor, solar burst, something like that, that can really shake things up, raise yeah. ocean levels, cause tidal waves, volcanic activity. So, yeah, that stuff's really going to be hidden then. Oh, it is. And, and just think about how we store information now. Yeah. We don't use physical media. Right. Or, or, or you know, so, even, I mean, all of that will be gone if something were to happen. You can't go and access the cloud 10,000 years from now. 
Um, yeah. You know, uh, so, I mean, there's not even like uh, a whole lot of consistent record keeping that you would be able to access and look at where, you know, current civilization got to. You would only have the stuff that was hard copy that would last. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which ends at a certain point and right. it's probably, you know, thousands of years old anyway now. <laughs> Two things. Um, one, there's a guy on Instagram who does what's up with Mars mm. and shows all these things that are obviously created on Mars. And basically, I came to the conclusion that if NASA found Mount Rushmore, they'd say it was wind erosion. Okay, <laughs> that absolutely, they will never accept that anything was built previously. Mm-hmm. You know. Also, of all people, and I'm not a, I'm not, this is not an endorsement nor a diss. It's just, of all people, Joe Rogan, uh, when he was doing stand up comedy, commented on this very topic and mm-hmm. said, Look, if civilization ended tomorrow, do you think we'd ever have calculus again? Do you think we'd ever bring that back? No, all this stuff's gone. We don't know how to build that back up. And that always impressed me. But please, go ahead. Actually, we're out of time. <laughs> so, um, Super Inframan, you can be found lurking where? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm usually around the uh, Where Did the Road Grow Discord some, and uh, I am on Instagram. Okay. And Vincent, your podcast is what? The weird part with Vincent Trewell, um, I have a Patreon, which is free for the moment, hmm. but is going to be monetized pretty soon. I have a YouTube channel, and I'm still having problems with my website, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but I'm on also on Facebook um, and Instagram. Okay, so and, and you that have a bo- where to find me. And do you have a book out, a fiction book? I do. Thank you for mentioning that. I have, and it may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I love what I did with it. Um, it I should have broke it down into chapters because it started as a short story and then took on a life of its own. Ah. But the book is Cosmic Collision, and it's available on Amazon. And, hey, you show up with a copy, I'll sign it for you. You want a signed copy, just contact me. And, yes, that is my most recent novel. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. I want to give a shout out here to all of my patrons. It is because of you that this show is possible. And I want to give a shout out to those pledging $10 or more. Greg Ross, Billuminati, Leanne Cherry, Matt in Delaware, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, 36 Dingo, Tim, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Christine, a blue second gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain. Patricia Gaia-Quinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Anne Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Bright Rectangle, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Legend of the Crazy Incommunicable, CJ, Craig Parmenter, Diane B., MTK, Eric Citron, Eric Todd, History and Coffee, Jay, Jay Otto Bullet, Jack Huntington, James Lindsay, Jim and Sophie, John Mattingly, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L, Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linda, Linz Jackson K, MJ Armstrong, Mark Brady, Mr. Weird, Oli Andre Olar, Stevie Norman, Jack Huntington, Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors, 
Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Schmooples, Devourer of Mortal Souls, Matthew, Andrew Malone, Stacy Sherwood, Strange Stories with the Seeker and Skeptic Podcast, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Varosh K., Vincent Trewell, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Annabelle Smith, Caroline Walker, TDT Skunkworks, A Crocodile, and Craig Sagastumi. Thank you all so very, very much. All right, a few days after this, Saxon and I did a Patreon segment. So it's a, it's a little, uh, it's not connected to the show at all. We're just answering some of the AMA questions. Um, other than that, I have a bunch of stuff I'm going to be posting. I just got to find time to edit it. So hopefully you're going to get a lot of cool stuff soon, both publicly and for Patreons. I want to take a moment to welcome our one new Patreon this week, and that is Ryan. So thank you, Ryan, Ryan, for joining up. I, I hope you enjoy the content. And I'm going to take you out with a band from Atlanta called Inviolate. Uh, this particular song came out on the Feast of Ashes record from 2012, which is uh, the first thing I heard from Inviolate. And uh, she, it, it's basically one girl, Kadria, and she has a band that she forms out of multiple different people. So there's, there's a ton of members of Inviolate, and when she does shows, if she's still doing shows, I haven't heard anything in a while, uh, she would just collect together uh, whoever was available to do the shows, which I always thought was kind of cool. Uh, she came up here and played twice. Uh, I had hoped to have them in studio live. They did an acoustic thing, but the stuff didn't take as well acoustic as it as the uh, the um, the full out electronic stuff. Uh, and the next week we had the performance studio up and running because so we had just moved into the building and they never hooked up the performance studio. So uh, yeah, that was a missed opportunity. She did uh, film a scene for us for our Necro Zombies. Uh, two movie, which we've literally been shooting now since 2014, because that was the first scene is with her. She also is a belly dancer and sword dancer, so when she plays, if you look up the videos, uh, you will see that. It's really cool. So, this is Feast of Ashes from Inviolate, www.wheredotheroadgo.com, and I'll see you next time.
dark So will you take my hand and we'll no longer need to walk been listening to where did the road go this show is made possible in part from our patreons and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange you can always find everything where did the road go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com and thank you so much for your support 